everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here as usual with just the zoo of us. And this week we have a new friend that we're talking to. This is Travis Kurtz. Say hi, Travis. Hi, everybody. I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm really excited to talk about our animal friend this week. So before we get into our animal, let's talk about Travis. <laughs> what kind of background, what got you into studying salamanders? So I was born and raised out here in the Pacific Northwest and spent a lot of time when I was just a kid, you know, walking around in the forest and ponds and looking for larval amphibians or eggs or you know finding salamanders under rocks so that was just kind of always a passion when i was young and i loved some of those zoo guys like you know jeff corwin or jack Hanna or steve Irwin. but i never really thought that that was a viable career pathway so when you know i went to college i thought i would go with a more sensible degree and decided to get a degree in business uh, but about two years in, I was getting a little a little bored with that. Just, you know, no no shade to people who follow that pathway and get a business degree or whatever. But I just wasn't super passionate about it. So I decided to tack on an environmental studies degree as well, you know, move a little closer to things that I really, really care about. And I thought I would be in renewable energy. Spent about a year doing that. and went to Iceland and studied some of their renewable energy stuff and then was still not like just really on fire about it. So when I got back, I decided to try for an internship at the local zoo where I was going to college. And that just, I thought it was the greatest thing on earth. I you know, couldn't be happier and I wasn't even getting paid. So <laughs> I decided at that point to follow that pathway and moved back to the Pacific Northwest after college and was working at Northwest Trek Wildlife Park, which is just a little south of Seattle. And I was there for about a year as a zookeeper. And I just, you know, fell in love with the conservation efforts and education that zoos do. Ellen, I know you live near and love the Jacksonville Zoo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you totally understand what that's all about. But I realized that to kind of get to where I wanted to be in my career, I would have to go back to school. Uh, so I moved back to my hometown, which is Bellingham, Washington, and came to school here as a master's student. But just like, you know, the rest of my academic career so far, it hasn't been the most linear or typical pathway. So I went with this program where it's a build your own master's degree. What? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds really cool. It is. And it was really frightening, right? So normally, I think for most grad students, you kind of find someone that you want to study with. And then you, you know, find a project in their lab that really is exciting to you or that will take you on. And you go with that. But I kind of did it backwards in that, like, I found something that I wanted to study. You know, when I moved back out here, I was like, oh, there's so many salamanders and other amphibians that live out here. I wonder what kind of threats are impacting them. And then I found an advisor and a committee who were willing to take me on. And we built a project and a program together. And so that's kind of how I ended up studying torrent salamanders for 
the past couple of years. That sounds like not only is it a really cool thing to study, but it's one of those like realization of like a childhood passion, you know, like you get to kind of go back to your roots. Yeah, absolutely. So for the longest time, I thought I wanted to take care of maybe birds or big exotic reptiles like Komodo dragons and the huge, you know, constrictors or things like that. But, you know, I just kind of fell in love with these relatively understudied, kind of underappreciated and definitely threatened group of animals. And so now I just love salamanders. I can't get enough of them. (laughs) That is a great opportunity to talk about, first of all, what salamanders are, because I I think it's very common probably for people to not really have a good idea of what a salamander actually is. It would be a very logical assumption to make to look at them and see, well, that looks quite like a lizard yeah, and, and assume that it is a reptile, but it is not, correct? No, they're not. So that's a great point. And they totally look like lizards. You know, they've got the same, same relative, you know, general body structure. They've got, you know, the long tail, the four legs built kind of low to the ground, generally not real big, but they are actually amphibians. Uh, so they're going to be more closely related to frogs and Sicilians, which are kind of like a, like a snake-like amphibian, but that's a whole different thing. Um, <laughs> My study species in particular is Ryacotriton olympicus. That genus name, Ryakos, is Greek for stream, and Triton is god of the ocean. So I think that's like a, you know, it's a little gods of the stream, basically. I think that's a pretty cool name. That's very powerful. Yeah. For <laughs> how small they are, they have a very powerful name. Um, how big are they? They're a couple inches long when they're fully grown. They're about the size of maybe your pinky finger or something like that. Um, and when they're itty bitty little babies, they are about the size of like the end of your thumb. So, you know, you think of like your knuckle to the end of your thumb, they're just tiny, tiny little things. And so they were discovered in 1917 by Helen T. Gage, a notable early female herpetologist. They are endemic to the Olympic Peninsula in Northwest Washington State. If you're not familiar, it's about as far west and north as you can go in the continental U.S. And uh, when I say endemic, I just mean that they're only found there, uh, not anywhere else. There are four torrent salamander species, all of which kind of live between here and Northern California. And honestly, if you put like all four species into a bucket, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. (laughs) they're generally differentiated on like the genetic level and they tend to live in non-fish bearing streams. so they these salamanders and fish mix kind of like oil and water they don't get along real well i think it's just competition for space and resources torrent salamanders though they're they're pretty understudied so we don't know a ton about them no one's totally sure how long they live but it's assumed to be you know right around 10 years maybe a little longer That's pretty long for a little guy, right? Yeah, it is. And something that I wasn't aware of until I started studying them is that they stay as larvae for about three, maybe four years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, I just kind of assumed that it was similar to maybe a frog that you would find in your local pond where it's like they're born in the spring, you know, the eggs are in the spring and then they hatch. And then maybe by late summer or midsummer or whatever, they've already you know, metamorphosed into a terrestrial form. But 
because they live in streams and there's that constant water source, they take much longer to reach their adult phase. And so, yeah, I would say they, given how small they are and how small things generally don't live all that long, I think they, yeah, they live for a while. That's pretty good. I think that that is probably a good transition into our ratings. Yeah. Because our whole thing on the show is that we review animals and rate them out of 10. Uh, And our first category that we rate animals on is effectiveness, which is adaptations to their body that let them do a really good job of the things that they're trying to do. Or maybe a really bad job. I don't know. Maybe we're about to learn some stuff about (laughs) torrent salamanders. You know, these are things that are built into their body that let them do those things, whether it's catching prey if they're predators, if it's evading predators, or it's, you know, camouflage or anything that is built into their body that lets them do a good job. So what would you give the Olympic torrent salamander for effectiveness? I would say that the Olympic torrent salamander is pretty darn effective at what they do. So I gave them an eight out of 10. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's they're pretty good at salamandering. (laughs) I have four reasons that I think they deserve this score. The first being is that they are amphibians, right? Like how many different groups of animals can live both in the water and in terrestrial environments? You know, it sets them apart from a lot of things. And honestly, they are, you know, pretty important in their uh, their ecosystems because they provide connectivity between, you know, the aquatic habitat and the terrestrial habitat. So, you know, they... They eat things in the water and then maybe they're, you know, on the stream bank or near the stream and then they poop out their their waste. So that, you know, moves some of that carbon from the water and carbon and nitrogen, I guess, from the water out to the land or, you know, maybe it's vice versa. They eat a little bug on the land and, you know, move to the to the water and excrete it there. So, you know, they provide a lot of connectivity and it's just super cool. I mean, we've got a lot of fish love in the science Twitter community um, (laughs) and they're just, you know, there aren't a ton of fish that can be in the water and on land. So I think that's super cool. I have a quick question about like amphibians in general. Sure. I think that when we hear about, I'm going to use the colloquial terms, cold-blooded and warm-blooded, even though I know you're not supposed to say that. (laughs) Which one is amphibians? (laughs) Great question. And thanks for asking. They are cold-blooded or ectothermic. So they are going to generally, their body temperature is going to kind of match whatever the environmental temperature around them is. So do they have to like, I guess, like, how do they warm their body up? Do they need to warm their body up pretty regularly? You know, I don't really think so. And this is something that I have spent some time thinking about, but I'm certainly no expert in. But I think that their their operating temperature is just going to be lower than, you know, something like a tropical lizard or a desert reptile that spends a lot of time basking. I think their bodies are just kind of more designed to operate in those lower and more temperate temperature ranges. Yeah, they're just able to keep on truck and doing that. Another great effectiveness trait, right? Like yeah. you don't need to be super warm. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm from the southeast. I live in Florida. And so all of our uh lizards and salamanders and things like that. Well when I think of like I know I keep thinking about lizards and I need to stop doing that when I'm thinking about salamanders. Oh, it's totally okay. <laughs> But, um, you know, they they bask in the sun, right, to warm Mm -hmm. themselves up. So you'll find them basking all day long, and then they just zip around and go catch their food or whatever. And I was thinking specifically about my 
my recently I had my first ever wild salamander <laughs> encounter, which was Fantastic. very exciting for me. <laughs> it was in a in a waterfall in northern Georgia, uh-huh. and I was really excited about it. And I was thinking about the salamander was sitting on a rock in a stream. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got close to it, I got close enough to take a picture, and then it jumped into the water and swam away. So yep. I was thinking about like whether it was basking to warm itself up or like what it could have been doing on that rock. Yeah. I mean, it may have been, it may have been just trying to, you know, catch some of that warmer air temperature and help it raise its body temperature, or it may have been out of the water in search of some other end, you know, it may have been just going somewhere and then you, you know, being so gigantic, (laughs) were like a threat to it. And so I was like, Oh no, gotta, gotta escape back into the water. Mm -hmm. Um, but in general, salamanders are pretty slow moving. They're not they're not racing around. And so that's just not quite as energetically taxing, right? So, you know, I think that their lifestyle is a little more refined in terms of being able to operate at those colder temperatures and not have that be a real problem. Oh, that's good. While we're on, I know you said you had other things you want to talk about real oh, quick fine. before we move on from like at the conceptual amphibian level. Um, uh-huh. So are salamanders like frogs in the sense that like they have to like breathe through their skin? This is something I hear about frogs a lot. So they they do. There's definitely gas exchange through the skin. You know, that's an important way that they gain some of that oxygen that they need. And quick little side point, it's why it's not a great idea to handle them with just your bare hands, especially if your hands are like dry and oily, or if you have like lotion or sunscreen or whatever on your hands, because they have like a really delicate skin chemistry. So handling them can really kind of, you know, mess that up and make it harder for them to do what they do. But yeah, they do gain a lot of oxygen through their skin. And this actually ties right into my next effectiveness point. The other way they do it is through gills. So Uh, For those of you that have been with just the zoo of us for a long time, I'm sure you remember the axolotl episode way back. And if you haven't been with just the zoo of us that long, go back and listen to it. It's a great (laughs) episode. You'll learn a lot more about salamanders. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah, it was great to listen to. But when you think of axolotls, you think of those big feathery gills, right? And those are super important for gaining oxygen the reason they're so big and that they have so many little fronds is that it helps them to transfer oxygen more effectively because of all the surface area, right? So, you know, they're found in lakes and water bodies that aren't moving quite as much. So they really need to um, kind of generate that gas transfer themselves. And sometimes they'll even kind of move their gills back and forth. But torrent salamanders, because they live in cold, moving waters that are relatively oxygen rich have these teeny tiny little gills especially you know when they're larvae they're external and then once they metamorphose into adults they kind of go inside their body so that's the other way that salamanders gain oxygen that made me think of one more thing yeah when the Olympic torrent salamander or, or the torrent salamanders in general, I suppose, when they're babies, what mm-hmm. do they look like? Do they look like tadpoles? <laughs> so that's a great question. Salamanders in general, when they're born at the very earliest stages, a lot of them have like two front legs and the gills and then no back legs, which they quickly develop. And then they have like kind of the four legs 
with the gills. And so that's what I think of when I think about torrent salamanders. Uh, not a ton is known about like the egg laying or early life stages of the torrent salamanders. There are only a couple papers out there. So it's a relatively like unstudied portion of their life cycle. But yeah, they just kind of look like smaller torrent salamanders. They have some similar physical characteristics, um, but their color is a little different. And they're just, yeah, these teeny tiny little baby salamander looking guys. And yeah, no bigger than like your thumbnail. And when they grow up, I, I realize we haven't even touched on this yet. When they grow up, <laughs> what do they, like when you're looking at a torrent salamander, like what are you seeing? Yes, you see like the salamander shape, but like what, like what is their coloration and what kind of markings do they have? Yeah. And we will definitely touch on this a lot more in aesthetics. Um, yes. <laughs> but in general, they are kind of a dark, maybe maroony brown color on the top with some white speckling. And they have these kind of bulgy protruding eyeballs on top of their head. And then the underside of the body is a brighter color. So usually pretty yellow. Yeah. Other than that, they just, you know, the kind of the typical lizard like shape, but very smooth, obviously no scales. Um, so just very smooth and sleek looking. So that's, that's generally what the Olympic torrent salamander looks like. And you're doing so good with these transitions because that leads me right into <laughs> my next effectiveness point, and it's this strategy called aposematism, which is really just a fancy way of saying like the animal advertises that it's not worth eating. And as I'm sure you're aware and your listeners are aware, because you've talked about brightly colored animals before, usually in nature, brightly colored means don't eat me, I'm poisonous, or I'm going to be really gross tasting or something like that. So the bright color of the underside of the salamander is considered like an aposomatic adaptation for its predators, which, you know, kind of a little sidebar here, it may or may not have that many natural predators. There's not a lot that's known about that. Scientists kind of hypothesize that maybe garter snakes eat them or maybe another salamander species that lives in the same stream uh, called the Copes giant salamander. And they get to about a foot long, so they're much larger. But we're not really sure what's eating these guys. So if this is like an aposomatic coloration, does that imply that they are they are poisonous? I don't know. Oh. Um, <laughs> I've, looked, I've looked for any sort of confirmation one way or the other. The best I could find is that Maybe they don't taste good because in situations where the giant salamander larvae had the option to eat torrent salamander larvae or other stuff, they ate the other stuff. So I don't know if they're necessarily toxic. I'm not sure how well that would work in like a in their habitat. And maybe they don't need it because there's not a ton of predators. But yeah, perhaps. I mean, a lot of salamanders do have some form of toxin that they use as a defense mechanism. But I did not include toxins in their effectiveness. So, <laughs> well, at least they've got the colors, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Maybe they're just talking a big game. <laughs> right. They're just like trying to trick any potential predators without having to like do the, the work of being toxic. They're like, you better not. It's a bluff. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not tasty. <laughs> just trust me on this one. <laughs> but then the last thing that I think is the coolest, and you did talk about this with the axolotls, is that 
uh, salamanders, or like the whole group called uridiles, are known for their ability to regenerate limbs, which is like a superpower and just absolutely blows my mind how well they can do it, right? So, you know, maybe maybe somebody does take a little chomp off the tail or one of its feet. Salamanders and torrent salamanders included do a really good job of regenerating that body part and it looks exactly the same. You know, so like lizards can lose their tails in a lot of cases and a lot of them drop it as a defense mechanism. But when it grows back, it doesn't look like the original. You can kind of tell where the tail broke off. But with salamanders, a regenerated limb looks basically identical to the original copy. And I think that's incredible. And yeah, I think it helps them live their best lives. (laughs) It's like it never happened. Yeah, no, we're good. Do you know, or has it been kind of looked into, if there's a limit to that regenerative like ability? So like, could you lose the same leg 20 times and it still regenerate just fine? Or does it like, I don't know, wear off? Right, like, does that deteriorate? <laughs> I have no idea. That's a really great question. And I'm sure that someone has studied that or is studying it right now because I think we want to know mm-hmm. how many times can salamanders grow a leg or a tail back? Asking the big question. <laughs> but the, I'm, I'm thinking about it and like that would also be a really messed up thing to test out. Like I don't feel like yeah, I could oh, be the be. one to test that out. That sounds highly unethical. No. <laughs> I'd be so sad about trying to find out whether or not that's possible. Yeah. I'm like, I would not want to be the one doing that study. No. <laughs> Uh, so the next category that we rate our animals on is ingenuity, which for us is behavioral adaptations. So things the animal is doing with their body, but these are maybe like strategies that it's using or just things that it has figured out, problem solving, things like that, that it is doing to give itself an advantage. So what would you give them for ingenuity? Yeah. So this is my most undecided category. This is always a tricky one. <laughs> this is, yeah, this one's super tricky for me. So I gave them like a six question mark out of 10. So I think this right score is six out of 10. In general, they just kind of live beneath rocks. And as we talked about, they don't have a ton of known predators and they just eat little stream invertebrates. So there's not really a reason for them to have a ton of like extreme behavioral uh, adaptations They've got a pretty good life and they just go about their days avoiding fish and bigger salamanders and eating whatever flows down the stream. So the aposematism is one of the reasons that I gave them the six, you know, gave them a decent score because they they'll flash the underside of their tail and to kind of, you know, potentially warn off any predators and maybe just kind of shows of aggression towards other males during mating season. Again, just using those bright colors to be like, Hey, let's not like, we don't don't even want to start this. Do they get along with each other or do they not really like to play nice? There's no evidence to this point of any territorial behavior. Uh, So in my field season last year, I was studying, I would do 10 meters of a stream at a time. Uh, That was kind of the the scope that I was looking at. And the most salamanders I ever found in a 10 meter stretch was like 50. Whoa, that's so many. That's a lot of salamanders. It was like every, it felt like every rock that me and my field assistant flipped over had like 
another one or two salamanders. And yeah, they seem to be getting along just fine. They were mostly larval salamanders. So it was like a, it was like 10 to one larvae to adults in that stretch. But the stream, like a little further down, this was late summers, late August of last year. And a little further down from my study area, the stream dipped under the water table. So it, like the stream bed looked dry, but that just meant that the water went underground for a little ways. So I was curious whether or not there was kind of like a, a bunching up effect and they were kind of forced to share share that area with one another. That's true. You kind of have to play nice, right? When you only have so much space to share. Yeah. So that leads me right into my biggest question mark in terms of torrent salamander ingenuity. We don't know hardly anything about their ability to move between streams, right? So if you think of a river network or any watershed, you've got your big rivers and then branching off of that, you've got all these smaller streams and then branching off of those, you have like the, the little tiny headwater streams. And those are the ones that I spent most of my time in looking for the salamanders. And all of the literature suggests that torrent salamanders are like strongly, strongly associated with the stream. They're rarely, if ever, found more than two meters away from the stream. Uh, they're only found in like first through third order streams. So like there's a there's a stream order classification system with one being like the smallest little headwater stream all the way up to like, I think the Mississippi River is like an eight, right? So you just kind of get an idea, like as the stream gets bigger, the number goes up. Mm -hmm. So they're only found in these small streams. So how do they get around, right? Are they, are they moving down to these bigger streams? Are they taking these long treks across dry open ground from stream to stream? And then you compound that with the fact that there's a lot of logging activity on the Olympic Peninsula. It's one of the primary industries out there. So there are all kinds of logging roads in these forests and bridges are pretty expensive, right? So like they can't build a bridge every time a logging road goes over a small stream. So they put in these culverts, which if you're unfamiliar with culverts by name, I'm sure you've seen them, everyone. They're just like a, usually like a metal pipe that is stuck in the ground that allows the stream to continue more or less unimpeded. But in a lot of cases, at least in the Olympic National Forest, there's a pretty big waterfall following a culvert up to like, you know, 20 feet or so. So that, that really fragments these streams, right? Like it chops them up even more. So we don't really know how the torrent salamanders are getting from stream to stream. And there, yeah, there are like a couple possible explanations, right? It's across dry ground, down to bigger streams that they don't normally inhabit. Can they climb? I don't know. Maybe they're like climbing up and going through these culverts, or maybe there are just these separate populations in each watershed. So maybe there is a lot of ingenuity there. Maybe climbing is a behavior that they exhibit. Maybe they travel a lot further over dry ground than I thought, but we don't know. So, you know, it's a six question mark, but <laughs> a lot of room for improvement there. Yeah. And I'm sure that like, as we learn more about them, maybe we'll find some hidden secrets that they've been keeping from us that they just don't want us to know how they're getting around. 
Yeah, I mean, they're being real cagey about it right now, but I'm sure they'll share their secrets at some point. I mean, I feel like being a salamander, you know, you get the best of both worlds. You know, you can walk on the land, you can swim in the water. Either way, it's totally fine. They got to be taking advantage of that some way, right? Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, that's it's one of the primary benefits of being an amphibian is being able to utilize the water and the land pretty much equally. So you'd think that they're using that to their advantage. But, you know, we hardly ever find them more than one or two meters away from the edge of the ro- or the edge of the stream. So walking up and then over a road and then back into the stream compared to one or two meters is like, that's a big ask. So who knows? How long can they stay out of the water? I know that with like a lot of amphibians, they need to be like constantly, they need like a high moisture environment just to like keep their skin Mm -hmm. healthy and stuff like that. Um, But is it the sort of thing where like they have to be in water every so often or like how long can they go out of the water? I don't really know. So I'm going to take a cop out answer here and say (laughs) as long as they can maintain like that appropriate level of moisture. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so that's one of the reasons that you see salamanders underneath like rocks or logs or leaf litter, because it tends to be like a cooler, damper environment. So when they are out of the water, that helps them maintain that necessary slimy moistness. When you say that they live in the Olympic Peninsula, when I think of that whole area, I think of it as being very mountainous. Mm -hmm. I lived in Seattle when I was a kid. And so I... I remember there being like mountains everywhere and stuff. Are these like up high in the mountains or are they kind of down low, closer to sea level? Both and pretty much everywhere in between. So these salamanders are found from right around sea level up to about 1,200 meters in elevation, which is about 4,000 feet, give or take. So yeah, they are found in all sorts of streams. One of the big takeaways from my thesis was that they, at least at the 10 meter stream reach level, they seem to prefer streams of like a medium slope. I think one of the reasons that they prefer that is that um, it helps flush out any sediment and turbidity that might be interfering with their ability to get the oxygen that they need from their environment. So yeah, you're right that it is super mountainous, but Yeah, they seem to love it. I've found them at the base of waterfalls, you know, in kind of that splash zone. I've found them up above waterfalls. They will just take whatever they can get when it comes to the streams that they're in. Okay. Does does the word torrent like imply that they are in like moving water? Like is does that have anything to do with it? Yeah, I think so, but it's it's a bit of a misnomer, right? Like (laughs) when you think torrent, you think like the water's moving so fast or like a torrential downpour is like mm-hmm. really heavy rain, but they're in like more gently moving streams. When I was measuring the flow rate of the streams, the flow was between like 0.1 and like 0.6 meters per second. It's leisurely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Enough that the water's moving, but not just going to be like shooting these poor little salamanders downstream to their doom or whatever (laughs) i'm imagining them just like desperately clinging to a rock (laughs) yeah basically like they just like shelter under whatever rocks they can find in the stream it leaves so many like unanswered questions it feels like a little like unsolved mystery and that's very exciting to me it's very exciting for me too as someone who would not mind spending more of my life 
you know, studying these little guys, there's a lot that is yet to be known about what they do and how they do it. I think that we should know more about these species that don't get as much shine. They're certainly not charismatic megafauna. They're not even that well known in this region because they are relatively hard to find and they have a pretty small habitat range. So, you know, they're just kind of, they're almost like a little forgotten species up here. We were talking about earlier before uh, we started recording is that, so I, I live in Florida in the Southeast mm-hmm. and that this area is is supposed to be full of, you know, salamanders Absolutely. and has lots and lots of them. And I was saying like, I have seen one <laughs> in my yeah. life. And so, you know, yes, they're everywhere and you, they're all over the place and they are so like well populated down here, but it's not the sort of thing you're going to see every day. No, totally. And the Pacific Northwest is similar in that we have a lot of salamander species out here as well. But unless you are intentionally spending a lot of time out in forests, like flipping over logs or rocks or leaf litter, which I don't really recommend doing because you're disrupting their homes, you're not going to see a ton of salamanders just out and about it's not like those lizards we were talking about earlier that you might see on your back porch basking or a snake slithering across the road salamanders tend to stay out of the way so yeah i think most people don't spend a ton of time you know considering the salamanders that might be all around them but in some forests they are the most abundant terrestrial vertebrates so there are salamanders all over the place appreciate your salamanders your local salamanders (laughs) yeah when you're just out in the forest looking at like you know a decomposing log or your nearest stream just think to yourself i bet there are a bunch of salamanders around here and just knowing that makes me feel better. I'm <laughs> just me happy too. that they're there. I know when I, I, I saw one and I was so excited about it. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, dang, I've probably just like stepped right over probably some at least in my lifetime. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And salamanders are, you know, one of the reasons that they're so, one of the reasons that salamanders are so important is that they are relatively sensitive to changes in the quality of their environment. So if the water quality starts to get degraded or if the forest is being kind of overexploited for its resources, a lot of times salamanders and other amphibians are the first to go. So they're kind of the canary in the habitat loss coal mine in that when they start to go, that's a good time to start paying attention that a lot of other species are going to be in a bad way if things don't improve. So I'm sure that there are a lot fewer salamanders in a lot of places now than maybe when I was a kid or when you were younger, because, you know, we are overexploiting a lot of our forest resources, unfortunately. Like you shared the experience of being so like captivated by them as a kid and it being so, it leaving such an impression on you that it, 
looped back into your career later on in life, right? And so like if kids now are not being able to have the experience of like finding all these amazing animals, they might not be so inspired. I guess that's just some motivation or some inspiration to consider protecting them more and being more proactive about them because they're amazing and they're a little bit fragile. So maybe putting some thought into what we can do to help them out. Absolutely. Yep. They are lovely little things and I love seeing them when I'm in the forest and I hope that continues for the rest of time and everyone gets to see them when they go out in the forest. So They are a real delight and that is pretty much the best possible way to move into the last category, which for us is aesthetics. Yeah. This is very self-explanatory. This is just your purely biased, totally arbitrary opinion on how pleasant you think these animals are to look at. So what do you give the Olympic torrent salamander for aesthetics? Oh, like an easy 10 out of 10. <laughs> They're I, so cute. <laughs> I love these guys so, so much. This doesn't, you know, doesn't work well in an audio medium, but I'm wearing a shirt that has a torrent salamander on it right now. Uh, my incredibly talented wife, like stitched one onto this shirt. I have an Olympic torrent salamander tattoo, actually. <gasps> I was so excited about the first one that I ever found that I like needed to immortalize it in ink on my body forever. They're, yeah, they're a 10 out of 10. This might be controversial for the lizard folks out there, but I honestly think salamanders are just like a cuter version of lizards. <laughs> um, like lizards can look really cool and imposing with like, you know, the sharp jagged scales, like salamanders are all like round soft edges uh these guys have these like goofy kind of bulging eyes on top of their head and i don't know if you've ever like looked at a salamander straight on but it for the most part they look like they're smiling all the time which is just like a really endearing little trait and they have this beautiful white speckling on their back that I mentioned earlier. And it just kind of reminds me of like, if you're out camping and you look up at the stars, there's like way more stars than you ever thought were like possible in the sky. And on the torrent salamanders on their back and sides, they've got like this really intense bright white speckling. And I just, it just reminds me of the sky. So I just think that they're like the cutest little (laughs) things walking in the forest. It's like if lizards were designed by cartoonists. Yeah, you exactly. get a salamander. <laughs> You're like, okay, how can I make this, you know, like 40% cuter or whatever? <laughs> lizards, but Pixar. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. A Pixar lizard. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, they're also, like, since they're usually have that kind of wet skin they're also a little Mm -hmm. bit shiny and like shiny is like the best word i can think of for it because they usually are a little bit kind of wet and are Mm -hmm. they slimy they they can be but it's it's more just like soft and a little moist more so than like like an active sliminess on their skin you know they just kind of feel a little damp or at least they should Um. (laughs) i know you you said you have worked with them and stuff and you also mentioned earlier not to handle them with bare hands but like have you had a chance to like feel what they feel like like their texture wise Mm -hmm. like what is that like so i will say that for my field work i did a fair bit of handling but there were some pretty like specific guidelines for things to do and not do when you're near handling so like anytime i was getting ready to 
start looking for salamanders. First off, I did not wear any sort of bug spray or sunscreen that entire summer because I was worried about sweating and having it like drip down my arms onto my hands. That is a massive sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, when you're out in the forest, it is. There were a lot of bugs that were pretty pleased that I didn't use any sort of spray, I'll <laughs> tell you. Uh, you were their best friend. Oh, they could not get enough of me. I was just a walking buffet. But yeah, in addition to that, I would always like rub my hands in, in the dirt and kind of remove as much of the oiliness from my hands as possible. Plus, my hands were in the water when I was handling them because they were in the water as well. I didn't have to handle them constantly. You know, I wasn't doing a ton of like body measurements, but there would be times that they were like trying to burrow away from me. So I'd have to get my hands on them so that we could confirm that it was a torrent salamander and not a different salamander species for the count. So yeah, I have gotten to feel them and they are just that like soft, smooth skin. Usually they were just sopping wet. So I couldn't tell if they were like damp or tacky or, you know, any sort of texture other than just like wet. I will say that torrent salamanders have absolutely zero chill. They <laughs> like it became the the signature way to at first glance tell what it was. If you flipped over a rock and it maybe like kind of wiggled slowly away, you're like, oh, that's probably a cope's giant salamander. They're the biggest salamander out here, so they're not really afraid of much. But if you flipped it over and there was just like this mad squiggly dash, you're like, yep, probably a torrent salamander. They <laughs> are just out of their minds when you find them. So real active little guys. I would be too if I was, you know, only a couple inches long. Right. Like I'm not trying to stick around to figure out whatever it is that just picked up my whole house. <laughs> and moved it. Let me sit here and consider you for a moment. No, goodbye. No, I'm out of here. <laughs> That is all of our ratings for today. So thank you so much for bringing this comprehensive review of a really cool and underappreciated salamander. What else are you like working on right now that you want people to know about? Yeah, so I am working on kind of translating my master's thesis on these guys into, into a paper. Uh, so just kind of taking a chunk of it and reworking it and fleshing it out a little bit that I hope to submit at some point. I'm also, I'm super passionate about zoos. Zoos are my absolute love. So I am also working on a paper right now that's about standardization in zoo welfare and conservation practices. And I'm working on that with Kylan Gartland, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Oregon studying primates. She's an incredible collaborator. And I'm also just looking to get back into the zoo world now that I've finished my master's degree. So on the career hunt right now. Just as a quick update, since we recorded this episode, our friend Travis accepted a new position as a zookeeper at the John Ball Zoo. Congratulations, Travis. If you're ever uh, in the Northeast Florida area and you like zoos, uh, we have Jacksonville Zoo, mm -hmm. which rules. We're very passionate about zoos, too. We try to, like, every time we go to a new city, we try to, like, look up their zoo or aquarium <laughs> and see if we can go there. Also, Georgia has, like, the Georgia Aquarium, yes. which is, like, the greatest um, place I've heard under. so much about the Georgia Aquarium so and Zoo Atlanta, for that matter. Zoo Atlanta rules, too. We went there for the first time last year. Yeah, I've just never had the chance to get down there. 
One more thing I do want to plug, because I'm so passionate about amphibians and citizen science. Another thing I'm working on uh, is a collaboration with Woodland Park Zoo, who have an incredible amphibian monitoring citizen science program. So I volunteered with them this past year and am now just working on doing a little bit with their nearly 10 years of amphibian monitoring citizen science data. But in general, if you, listener out there, want to spend a little time, you know, helping scientists in your area find amphibians, I would check your local zoo website and see if they have some sort of amphibian monitoring program, because a lot of those programs rely on the manpower of people who are not paid scientists that are just interested citizens. And it's so helpful to be able to know what's going on with local amphibian populations. And maybe it's not a zoo, maybe it's some other nonprofit. So I cannot recommend strongly enough doing that. The current climate may not allow for that. Um, A lot of zoos are kind of having to adjust these programs as they figure out what's allowed with meeting in person for trainings and whatnot. But I know that all of those types of programs are currently looking for more people to help figure out what's up with the local amphibians. Awesome. You can actually help. There's something you can do. (laughs) You totally can. Does iNaturalist help at all? Do you guys do anything with iNaturalist? I use that a lot. Yeah. So the, at least the project that I'm working with, so Woodland Park Zoo, they use iNaturalist as their uh, data entry site. They've just kind of created their own like project and then you just enter all of your survey data in there. And then it's really easy to compile and export and do other stuff with. Awesome. And and I use iNaturalist personally, and I can vouch for the fact that it is very cool and very easy to use. Yeah, it's so straightforward. You can just have it as an app on your smartphone. And as you go around snapping cool pictures of cool wildlife, you can just upload it. And it is already like geotagged with the location And then other citizen scientists or like professional scientists can use it for projects. Yeah. And what I like to use it for, too, is like I'll take a picture of something when I'm out and about and then Mm -hmm. I'll put it on there and it it will guess at what it thinks the species is. Like if you don't know what it is. And then even if you don't know what it is and you just say, yeah, sure, I think it's that. Then other people will come on there and say like, oh, it's actually this. Yeah, it's so helpful. Yeah, it gives you a great way to like figure out more about what you just saw in real life. Yeah, I've learned a ton of species just by like taking a picture of something that looks cool and then putting it on there and be like, oh, that's what that is. Yeah, okay, that's awesome. I'm I'm glad to know that there's like actual action items that people can take to help out with the salamanders. That's great. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's everything we've got for today. So I just wanted to thank you again for coming on and talking about this cool little critter and teaching us about your friend and the, the work that you've been doing. We really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much. And if you want to like reach out to me directly, You can find me at SalamanderTrav on Twitter. That's probably the best way to go about doing that. So thank you so much for having me. Of course. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.